0: Hey, where is this? Hey. hey, everybody, how you doing? This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Show. I am here in Los Angeles, and it is good to be with you. Thanks for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Pulitzer Prize winner Elizabeth Strout, author of the new novel Lucy by the Sea. You know, after I won the Pulitzer Prize,
1: I I, I was frightened because i thought now people will look at what i'm going to write Uh, but then very shortly i realized you no, know, I've always held myself to the highest standard, you know, that reader presence that I have in front of me, I've always held myself to the highest standard that I can, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just as much of a perfectionist as I can be, to try and get it right, and so that won't change, whether it's one reader or a hundred readers, I understood, because I was older too, you know, I wasn't, you know, thrown by it, I think, in the way that I might have been if I was younger. All right. That was Elizabeth Strout, Pulitzer
0: Prize winner and author of the new novel Lucy by the Sea. Just published yesterday, September 20th, 2022. It's available now wherever books are sold from Random House. Lucy by the Sea is a beautiful novel. Masterfully crafted. Both in its renderings of the physical world, and in particular, in its renderings of character. It's just lovely. For me, Elizabeth Strout is incredible when it comes to creating characters who seem vividly real on the page, emotionally and psychologically complex in ways that are both instantly recognizable and also startlingly new at the level of insight. Her characters are totally distinct. And it's uncanny how real they seem. She is a writer who has remarkable access to her characters and to the world that she has created for them. And Lucy by the Sea is propulsive literary fiction. It draws you right in from page one. It doesn't pull any punches, and it is just so emotionally involving. And the prose is clear as a bell, which as a writer I always aspire to, and as a reader I always appreciate. It's uh, it's like the old James Baldwin line. What is it? Uh, sentences as clean as a bone. This is what it's like to read the work of Elizabeth Stroud. So much care is placed in every line, and there is the sense that there is no wasted motion. So what else can I say? I loved Lucy by the Sea. I tore through it. And I was kind of sad when it was done. Which uh, I think is another one of the effects of uh, Elizabeth Strout's work because these characters seem so real. This world, it's so real. It's so lived in that when the book is over, you miss it and you miss the the people. Lucy by the Sea is the fourth novel by Elizabeth Strout that features as its protagonist a writer named Lucy Barton. Many of you out there who are listening are probably familiar with Lucy Barton, who is a wonderful heroine and a great set of eyes through which to experience The milieu of Liz Strout's fiction, which tends to center on New England and Maine in particular, uh, but also in this case, New York City. Lucy by the Sea is in a nutshell about Lucy Barton and her ex-husband, William, who was her first husband. And it's about how they end up living together during the pandemic. So... This is a very contemporary story with recent history on its mind, and it has a lot of other things going on, which you will hear Elizabeth Strout and I talk about, and which you should experience for yourself by reading the novel. My conversation with Elizabeth Strout is coming up in just a couple of minutes. For those of you out there who might be new to this program, the Other People podcast is offered freely. It is a weekly show that launched in 2011. New episodes drop every Wednesday. The official website for the show is otherppl.com. You can listen to the entire archive free of charge. There are nearly 800 episodes and counting. Past guests on this program include writers like Susan Orlean, Min Jin Lee, Jonathan Franzen, Roxanne Gay, Bret Easton Ellis, Hanya Yanagihara, George Saunders, Jesmyn Ward, Chuck Klosterman, and more. I also want to let you know that I do a weekly email newsletter. It is free. It's once a week. I basically share a list of things that I'm reading or finding interesting. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at otherppl.com or at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. The Other People podcast has social media feeds. If you want to follow those, you can follow the show on Twitter at Other or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. If you are a listener of this program on a regular basis and you like what you're hearing, I hope you will rate and review the show wherever you listen. That helps new listeners find the show. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It published earlier this year. If you want to check that out, you can visit bradlisty.com or track it down wherever you get your books. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Once again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Today's episode is brought to you by The Feminist Press, publisher of a new story collection by Luke Danny Blue called Pretend It's My Body. This is Luke's debut, and it is informed by their experiences in and between genders. Pretend It's My Body is a debut story collection that blurs fantasy and reality, excavating new meanings from our varied dysphorias. Luke Danny Blue invites the reader into a world of outlier lives made central— and magical thinking made real. This is a surreal, darkly humorous, and always deeply felt collection. Pretend It's My Body is bound together by the act of searching for a spark of recognition and a story of one's own. That's Pretend It's My Body by Luke Danny Blue, available now from The Feminist Press. Okay, so today's guest once again is Elizabeth Strout, author of the new novel, Lucy by the Sea, available now from Random House. Elizabeth Strout is from Maine. She was born in Portland and grew up in small towns in both Maine and New Hampshire. Her other books include O. William, which has been shortlisted for the 2022 Booker Prize. Uh, Olive again, Anything Is Possible, which won the Story Prize, novel called My Name Is Lucy Barton, The Burgess Boys, Olive Kittredge, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, Abide With Me, and Amy and Isabel, which won the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction and the Chicago Tribune Heartland Prize. Elizabeth Strout has also been a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award and the Orange Prize in London. So, quite a career, and certainly one of our more accomplished and celebrated contemporary authors. And I'm just thrilled to have her here on the Other People podcast and to get to share this conversation with all of you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Elizabeth Strout, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Lucy by the Sea
1: The reason I wrote this book is because I had literally just finished Oh William, which is about Lucy and William on a road trip through Maine, and I had just finished that book when the pandemic began, and it even occurred to me to make an epilogue of the book before I turned it in, but then I realized I liked the way that Oh William ended and I didn't want to have the Reader turned the page and find another, you know, a continuation of her voice. So I just started the book having no idea where the pandemic was going or what was happening. And so I have never written so closely to what was actually occurring in real life before. So I would write different scenes, but they were still so much in my head that I thought, okay, let's, let's, uh, I can't pretend this isn't happening. This is hap- happening in the world. So let's get William, take her off to the coast of Maine and stick them together in this house on a cliff and see what happens.
0: And you were really in some ways writing it in real time. Uh, yeah. uh rather than maybe keeping like a daily diary of what was happening, you were just sitting down to write your novel and probably things that were happening that same day, uh, you might've worked their way into the story.
1: Right. Or a few days later or something, you know, because I write, I write in scenes. I don't write from beginning to end anyway, but I, I would try and capture a feeling from Lucy's point of view, you know, that had occurred.
0: Okay. And I was going to get to this, but I figure since you brought it up, we'll talk about it. The fact that you write in scenes rather than writing in a linear narrative, the way that a lot of people do. This is kind of like, I mean, I know there are probably other authors that do this, but this is sort of your method and it works for you and for listeners, many of whom are writers or aspiring writers, it'd be good to hear you maybe flesh this out a little bit more. Like you will sit down, write a scene. I think I've read where you say you see if it has a pulse. Yeah, and a heart. Yeah, right. if it has a heartbeat. And right. if it, if it has a heartbeat, then you have confidence that you'll be able to find a way to string it and connect it to another scene with a heartbeat, essentially.
1: Right. Yeah. That's exactly right, and I learned that many, many years ago when the time that I had to write was very limited. And I, I just finally realized one day, wait a minute, I'm, what's the point in writing a wooden scene if, um, if I know I'm going to probably cut it anyway? Let's just think. Let's just go straight to any scene that has a heartbeat. You know, anything that I'm feeling that I can push and transpose into a character, and it would. Help! It helped a tremendous amount. And that's when I began to realize after a while, if they do have a heartbeat, the scenes will very often connect in some sort of way. But I don't do it from start to finish. It's a mess.
0: (laughs) Well, but I bet there's probably some lovely surprises when it comes to the connection part, you know, when you find the ways that these things string together. I'm just imagining, but...
1: No, it's very surprising. Right, right. I mean, the last page of Olive Kittredge, the very last page I had written way before I had even written that story, I just I just had this scene and I, it was so vivid and I wrote it down and thank goodness I didn't throw it away or or it ended up, you know, I was able to find it because I'd even written end question mark on the on the um, top of the page and then when I got to that story, I thought, wait a minute, I know the end, where's the ending? And I found it. And so, there, there it was. There it was?
0: So this book it's interesting for a lot of reasons one of the things that i kept noticing as i read was what you didn't say like it's as notable for what it does say as much as it is for what it doesn't say and i i couldn't help but flag that you don't mention trump by name until i believe like page 160. is Uh, his name in there? i mean or maybe like the current president is what you say the current president yeah so like the political realities of the time are at a remove and i think it's right around that 160 page mark where finally it starts to enter the conversation and i want to have you read from that part of the novel because it brought things into focus for me and i think it's a really interesting creative choice so if you could just read that that would be great
1: along those lines this is important i think i need to tell you about one summer evening William and I took a drive after we ate dinner. It was still light out and we stopped at a roadside place that was selling ice cream. The place that sold the ice cream was a small blue shack with a lot of lawn around it and a tree stood in the middle of the lawn. When we first got there, people, not many, were milling about on the lawn and we got out of the car and stood in line at a safe distance from the woman ahead of us who wore no mask. The woman who was serving the ice cream was not a young woman and she wore a mask, but she wore it below her nose. And I wondered if William would say we shouldn't get ice cream from her. But he said nothing. And this is what I want to say. An old man with a white beard was sitting on a stool beneath the tree, playing the guitar and singing a song. And there was another man who had just gotten his ice cream. Even I could tell immediately that he was from out of state, maybe even New York. And the car he got into was expensive looking and slung low to the ground but I could not see the license plates. This man wore dark pink shorts and a blue collared shirt tucked into them and he wore loafers with no socks. And I heard behind me some people speaking of him, fucking out of stater. And I turned and they were men who wore no masks who had said that and they looked a little frightening to me. And then the woman ahead of me in line who was not wearing a mask, saw another woman who got out of her car and they threw their arms around each other and said hi. What I am trying to say is that for a few minutes, I had what almost felt like a vision that there was a deep, deep unrest in the country and that the whisperings of a civil war seemed to move around me like a breeze I could not quite feel, but could sense. We got our ice cream and we left and I told William what I had felt and he said, I know it has stayed with me that feeling I had that evening.
0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to
0: wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. So for me as a reader, the fact that you kept the president and the politics out of it, and yet everything that was happening was happening against that backdrop, it almost made a made it feel like a ghost story in some way, or there was some kind of eerie effect that it delivered. And when I got to that passage, it sort of turned the dial and brought that into focus. It was fine. You finally said the quiet part out loud. Right. And I just like to hear about that choice, that creative choice to sort of leave the politics out of it, focus on the personal and tell this human story without kind of getting into the weeds, even though the reader can kind of feel it humming in the background.
1: Right. Well, Lucy, and this was true in O. William, Lucy in, during her lifetime has sometimes had visions. And so I thought, OK, this is perfect. We can make this feel almost like a vision that Lucy is having because she seems to have access to seeing, you know, things that other people don't have sometimes. So in that choice of making it feel almost like a vision to Lucy, I was able to present it to the reader with this is what Lucy felt.
0: Did you in any earlier draft or in any discarded scenes, did you get more explicitly political and then make the decision to remove that? Or was it always the case that you were going to be?
1: I did make the decision to remove it. There were more scenes of, you know, head on political stuff. And then as I was understanding the book and understanding Lucy more, I realized because it's so interesting when you find that you put little hints to yourself along the way that you don't even know like i realized at the very beginning when lucy doesn't want to see the computer that williams shows her about elsie waters having died at the very beginning of the book i realized okay so lucy is a person who looks away she can barely watch the news she can barely watch uh, she doesn't watch the capitol building and that was very helpful to me as i realized okay this is lucy's story and Lucy herself ends up saying, I look away. like She's like Mildred, the woman that was very nice to her as a child at the you know, Thanksgiving dinners, who would look away at the house her husband had died in, and Lucy's mother had been so nasty about that. But Lucy recognizes this in herself, that I look away. So I thought, okay, then this is Lucy's story from Lucy's point of view. We can have her looking away, and therefore we don't need to include all, the, the, all their political scenes that I had put in.
0: I feel like you are a person who does not look away.
1: No, I don't look away, but Lucy does, so that was helpful. Yeah,
0: well, and I, you know, I think speaking of looking away, there is, and, and this has been noted by uh, people who have read your work for a, a while now that you have an incredible facility at drawing characters and at creating on the page a feeling of deep and almost like 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 shockingly immediate intimacy would be the way that I put it. Or, uh, to myself as I was reading, because I was like, man, I feel like by page three, I was in these people's lives. <laughs> like you got yeah. me there. Very, you got me there very quickly. And I know that you are a careful looker. You're a careful observer as anyone who's good with character tends to be. But yeah. when it comes to creating vivid characters on the page, I'm wondering if there's anything else that you do. Like, do you create character bios prior to writing
1: no, I don't. I just, I just think about them. It's a matter of concentrating so deeply. I just think and think and think about who they are and go down and down and down into them. You know, just really blocking out the rest of the world while I'm concentrating that hard. It's, it's, a, it's a process of concentrating. And then I feel that I can know them and put them on the page.
0: It reminds me of that scene when Lucy is in her study above the bookstore, and she's sitting in the overstuffed chair, and right. she she's just thinking about what is it arms and legs or the the um,
1: character like, right
0: right, and so that's interesting, and so I suppose like once you've done that deep, concentrative thinking about the character, you get the basics of who they are nailed down, and then once you're in the actual writing process there's some flexibility still. They can still surprise you, right?
1: Oh, and, uh, they do all the time. And I'm thrilled when they do because if I'm not surprised, you won't be surprised. You uh, know.
0: Sure, yeah. And you know, you say when you when you like reflect on your work, or you have said that it always starts with a character. Like some writers start with an idea, you start with people every time. Yeah,
1: always. It's only because I just, I don't think there's anything more fascinating for me in the world than people. So that's what drives me every time.
0: And, uh, you've said, you've also said that Lucy Barton allows you to look at the really quiet parts of living. Like, what is it about her that gives you access to that aspect of the human experience? Is there something, is it just the fact that she's a writer herself or is it something else?
1: Well, you know, Lucy came to me as quite a surprise. I mean, when I wrote My Name is Lucy Barton, it was really, I wasn't intending to, I was working on something else and I just didn't, it just came to me, but she arrived through her voice and I didn't want to write from a first person narrator. I usually do third person, you know, omniscient. And so I tried not to, but her voice was like a, like a gold thread that was just sort of coming down in front of me. And she is her voice. And I realized, okay, well, if I get her voice down, then I actually have this person. And she was so accessible to me once I allowed myself to find that voice and to hang on to it. And she was very surprising for me because she's so she's so there's a breathiness to her voice, you know, a, a kind of an urgency, a quiet urgency to her voice. And and her interior life allows her to be honest with herself you know she's i think i think of her as an honest person and so her observations are quick and immediate and i don't know how to describe her
0: i was thinking of like this juxtaposition of fragility and strength there's something so something sort of fragile about her but she's also very strong and willing to kind of look at the hard things
1: that's actually really i think you're absolutely right about that she's fragile but she's really strong i mean like she she can bend but she doesn't break
0: and you know you've talked about because you published your first novel at age forty-two, correct? Right. So you know uh, it wasn't like you were some wonderkin that came out the box at like age twenty-two with the debut. <laughs> you yeah. took you took a long road, and you've had great success. And everybody's got their own path. I think it's heartening to hear stories like that because I think the culture kind of tells us if it doesn't happen by the time we're uh-huh. X, then it's not going to happen. And
1: yeah,
0: you're a great counterpoint to that. And uh, something that you said was that you can't, or something that you have said is that you can't write fiction and be careful. And right. you then said, I probably was careful for too long. Can, yeah. you, can you talk about what you, you know, a little bit more deeply about what you meant by that and then, you know, what changed with uh, with your debut when you finally broke I, through?
1: I think that I was always, I think for many years, as I look back, I was trying to write like a writer and i think that was the problem because every time i sat down i thought does this sound like a writer and then i realized finally no this has to sound like me this has to be my writerly voice not anybody else's you know so the the attempt to to barricade myself off from my real subjects or my real uh, desires to put on the page something that was real was sort of Barricaded because I kept thinking I need to sound like a writer and then finally when I was able to write Amy and Isabel, I realized no 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 this is my voice and I can write anything I need to So that that was my breakthrough
0: and also, you know, probably nobody's gonna read this anyway And then it it goes on to become a bestseller (laughs) I
1: I thought well nobody's gonna read this anyway, so just say what you want to say
0: so I did (laughs) And, And you have continued to
1: yes, exactly
0: do you feel like you're getting exactly. better? Do you feel like you're getting better at that, like having that sense of abandon and the willingness to risk?
1: Yeah, I do. Because you know, it's just time's short, and it's getting shorter. And I might as well just say whatever it is I think needs to be said for my readers to be able to take something truthful in.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's funny because I think so many of us who write struggle with that, especially when we think of the people in our lives that we're close to, you know, family, right. family and friends. What are they going to think? And then right. you, you say it, you know, you put a book together and you put it out into the world and it, it, it says all these on, you know, quote unquote unspeakable things. And I found that like the reaction tends to be a little bit surprising. It's not always exactly what you would think. Like certain people might have trouble with it, who you didn't think they would. And then other people who you were anticipating a negative response from are fine with it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That You're absolutely right. And that, you know, has happened and I have become okay about
0: it and one of the things i noticed uh about lucy by the sea you know i talked about how there was this like just this immediate like crazy fast sense of intimacy that i developed and i think maybe the reason for that the most primary reason is that you really lead with a strong punch and you tell the reader the stakes in plain terms in right away like there's a lot of information coming at the reader in those first few pages but yeah. You get a kind of a comp- almost a complete sense of the terrain right away. You don't hold back.
1: Right. Right, because I want I want the reader to be positioned you know, I think it's very important that a reader get positioned right away. And I think about the reader all the time while I'm writing. I always have a reader in mind. I always have. So for me, it's never like I'm, it's never like I'm just working myself. I'm working always with the reader. And so I think, okay, what does the reader need to know? Well, they need to know this, just put it out there, let them know that. And then we'll move on.
0: Do you have a, an ideal reader that you write to? Like, do you write to a a spouse or a friend or somebody like that? Or is it a more abstract?
1: It's more abstract. It's, it's, it's a reader I've had for years. I remember, I remember many, many years ago, I realized, well, if I can make up people, I can make up a reader. So I made up a reader and the reader has no gender, but it's really sort of right in front of me. And it's a person who's patient, but not super patient. It's a person who's, you know, kind of willing to go with me, but I have to be responsible. And so it's my sense of responsibility to that reader that I am aware of all the time. Like, what do you need now? You know, and if you go with me, I want you to feel safe, even though we might look at things that aren't safe, but you will be safe. You'll be in safe hands.
0: And what about being a writer who has become so associated with place? You know, I've I've read that you're not in love with the idea of being considered like a main writer. Uh, no. But... I have to cop to it. I just feel like you own that place. Like there's something kind of nice about owning it, right? Like, like, well, <laughs> can you talk about that? Talk about that. Like, what is what are the, what are the downsides?
1: Well, I think it was Marjorie Rawlings who said that if you're a regional writer, you you become quaint. And I somehow came across that quote one day, and I thought, well, she's right. So I don't want to be a regional writer. I want to be a writer for anybody who who can receive it. You know in the world but i you know i come from many generations of maine and i have very ambivalent feelings about that unlike my family who is very proud of it for some reason and i just i'm just always objected to the chauvinism of their attitude. you know like oh well, we're from maine i just can't bear it so i have ambivalent feelings about maine
0: and yet it's your work is, is shot through with it and i think you know uh, even though there is a very distinct like New England sensibility. I say this as a reader who's never lived, or as a person who's never lived in New England, has spent minimal time in New England. Though I have, I walked the Appalachian Trail in Maine, so I have spent time in Maine. Uh-huh. But to me, I was like, wow, I just feel like this is so New England as I was reading it. Like, it just feels like so of that place. And yet, I'm not from there. I was completely absorbed with the story at the at the human level, too. You know, so I think right. your your work succeeds in both ways is what I'm saying. Like, I think right. obviously people from all over the place are responding to it and finding themselves in it, even though it's distinctly New England and its sensibility in ways that, I mean, you just can't extract yourself from. That's where you're from, right?
1: Right. It's exactly where I'm from. And, and one of the really fun things about writing this book for me was to to look at all the landscape through Lucy's eyes, because she has never seen the coast of Maine. And every, and for me, it's like looking at my arm. It's just like, I know it so well, you know, it's like, but then I realized, okay, so Lucy has never seen this. And I would walk around or drive around and think, okay, Lucy's eyes, Lucy's eyes. And it was unbelievably interesting for me to really see an entirely, well, not different, but you know what I mean? To have a different point of view from her, from experiencing it from her point of view for the first time
0: it's, it's kind of lovely the coast of yeah. maine
1: it was lovely it's, it's sort of changed my feelings about maine
0: yeah <laughs> well and a place that i think a lot of people might have fa- i mean myself included might have fantasized about in the age of covid you know or places like it where you right. have some space you have right. some fresh air you can right. get outside a little bit and you know there's a great tension in the book because lucy you know, has a place in New York City, she comes to Maine from New York City, and she's sort of a city person. And there is this uh, tension that I would imagine is, is uh, real, you know, among Mainers between, you know, the people who are kind of native and who live there versus the people who come up in the summers from the big cities. Uh, That's a pretty dramatic tension. There's some real animosity there.
1: There is tension about that. There absolutely, yeah um it was interesting because i was talking to a woman in england the other day and she said that during COVID there was the same tension that happened there londoners who were moving out you know to the more rural areas and so i think it's um, probably a you know not just unique to maine and new york but to city versus you know the provinces
0: yeah i've thought about that like it's just having like california license plates right Uh, i was reading a story about like montana Like everybody was moving to Bozeman, you know, during the pandemic or whatever. And people in Bozeman were, you know, not a fan of people with California plates. I was imagining what that must,
1: you know, must be like. It's just like with the New York plates. Yeah, I got it.
0: So, uh, you know, this set of novels that you've published, you've kind of built like a universe. It feels like it's like a universe that your characters inhabit. They appear like Olive Kittredge makes a cameo in this book. You've created this fictional town of Crosby, Maine. And I'm wondering how much of that was premeditated or versus how much of that just kind of emerged through the creative process, perhaps as a surprise to you
1: it was totally a surprise to me when i wrote amy and isabel i had no idea that these characters would continue to show up with me or or continue on i had no intention of writing olive again i thought olive was finished but i think my personal feeling is that because i do concentrate so much on these people and they and I just think about them so much that they become very very real to me and then as I'm writing something I realize oh well you know Bob Burgess lives here now let's put him in you know so by the way so I,
0: I want to interrupt you I love Bob Burgess as a character he is love a lovely him. human being <laughs>
1: Isn't he just the nicest man thank you I just thank you I just think he's wonderful such yeah. a man but anyway so and then I just realized it I mean it sort of grew organically but then i began to realize wow it's all here like i can do this because they're all going to be here for one reason or another and then the fact that william brings lucy to the coast of maine you know toward the end of the book you understand that there's a little question about why he brought her to maine because of his sister his you know half-sister and how much you know as his daughter said that worked out for him so you know it wasn't like i just brought them to maine for no reason I mean, you know, because he could have taken her to Montauk or someplace else. And so there, but he had that half sister up here. So, you know, he might have been hoping and he probably was hoping and it did work out for him. So anyway, it just seemed to me to be organically possible for all these people to be together.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. It's like its own, you know, it's its own own world. And I want to talk to you about the relationship between lucy and william which i love because i don't see it often in fiction where you have divorced characters many years past their breakup who are amicable and affectionate with one another and have developed what i would characterize as like a really adult perspective on the whole state of affairs and it was just refreshing to me i was like oh like because usually it's like in in you know, popular fiction or narratives in movies or whatever, it's always, they're always at each other's throats and they hate each other. And, you know, it's just this kind of ice storm of uh, human behavior, but that's not the case here.
1: You know, when I was writing this book and, and as I wrote their dialogue to each other, I, it was so fun because I realized, wow, these people really know each other in a way that is kind of unique. And it, it, they know each other in a way that transcends the fact that they met when they were young. They just somehow have understood each other on some level for many years, and now they're stuck together, and they continue to understand each other through the dialogue. It was it was interesting to me to see that.
0: Well, and also, I think it's like, it makes me think of the way time works its magic. Yeah. You know, things can be really sour in a breakup or a divorce, and then... You know, you give it 25 yeah. years and things can yeah. change dramatically in ways that you would never believe possible.
1: Exactly. And, and Lucy is open hearted. I mean, they're both decent. From my point of view, they're both decent people. You know, Lucy is perfectly open hearted and Williams, William, he doesn't, you know, he says, yours is the life I wanted to save. So they have a very deep affection or love. I think, you know, love for each other.
0: So I want to get back uh, a little bit to this idea of saying the unspeakable and drawing that intimacy on the page that I think is one of the main reasons why so many people respond to your work. You're so good at that. And early on, I think it was early on, might even have preceded Amy and Isabel, your debut, you took a stand-up comedy class? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. So talk to
0: me about that. That, And was that before the debut?
1: Yeah. It was. I did it because, well, I was interested in comedy. Ever since I moved to New York, I, I would go to the different comedy clubs. And what I began to understand right away is that people laughed because something that was said was true. And that would bring out the laughter because somebody would say something unspeakable, but it would be true. So I thought to myself, well, what would happen if I put myself in that kind of pressure cooker where I was immediately responsible for making people laugh? What would come out of my mouth? So because I could sense that all my work and i was working on writing forever but i could tell that there was something not truthful about it something even though i didn't know what so i i took a class at the new school and it was really terrifying you know every every week somebody else would drop out but i mean particularly for somebody like me it was really really horrifying but those of us who made it through the class for our final had to perform at the comedy club in i think it's east 88th street or something so i did and my whole thing was about making fun of myself as a white woman from Maine. And they laughed. Oh my god, thank God they laughed.
0: <laughs> Dear. You, you killed
1: uh, I did. I was asked to come back and audition for a regular spot and I said no I will I would die I would be dead if I had done that because it took so much out of me. It was just so terrifying. But they did laugh. So but the whole point is that I learned through that that I was a white woman from New England. And that it sounds so stupid, but I honestly didn't know it. That's how white I was. And that's how much from New England I was that I didn't know it until I was making fun of myself, you know, having lived in New York for a while and seen many different other cultures, that that's actually what I was and making fun of myself for it. So I realized, okay, I'm a white woman from New England. Then I'm going to write about a really uptight white woman from New England. And there's Isabel Goodrow an uptight white woman from New England with a single daughter. She has no idea what to do with her, and that was that. So it was actually my instincts to do it were right, but it was a really terrifying experience.
0: I imagine. Do you have any of your jokes? Like, Do you have any of your jokes uh, okay. uh, offhand? you want to do some no, of your routine?
1: <laughs> not even remotely. I actually destroyed the, the – my husband had the videotape, and he had put on a disc – And i I destroyed it i don't want anybody to ever see
0: it i imagine but like i'm imagining you as a deadpan delivery like almost like stephen wright or something like i'm seeing that is that part of is that how you you were on stage
1: i don't really know it was all a blur to me i remember some people talking about diane keaton a little bit but i have no idea Hmm.
0: that's interesting i've thought about that and i I actually have talked to a writer i had a writer on the show years ago who wrote a book about a stand-up comedian and really like did like experiential research and like got into the scene and was performing at open mics. And that makes a a lot of sense to me. There's a real logic to this idea that by, by taking yourself way out of your comfort zone and by actively working to say the unspeakable and to get at the core of your personal truth that you would have a creative breakthrough that has really not just led to the first novel, but has led to all of them.
1: Right. Exactly, just accepting this is what I
0: am. So maybe if you're listening out there, it might be time to sign up for a stand-up comedy class.
1: <laughs> Ooh.
0: So uh, you had uh, a pretty austere upbringing in a manner similar to Lucy Barton. And one of the things I read uh, when, when I was uh, prepping was that you said about your parents, my father was probably more decent, but my mother was more interesting. Uh, your, yeah. your mother is, and I think a lot of times writers have this, they have one of the, one of their parents or some, you know, it's usually one of the parents is the parent from whom they get their writerly bearing yeah. from. And it seems like right. your mother was the one who gave it to yes. you.
1: Yes, I think she was. And it uh, it took me years to realize, I think that she probably wanted to be a writer herself. Um, she taught writing at the university of New Hampshire. She taught writing in high school, expository writing, not fiction writing, but she I think wanted to be a writer and she had she was the one who started me off as a very young child telling me to write down what i had done that day but also she was a storyteller i mean she could tell a story i mean years later i recognized her talent she could tell a story that would start and go in a whole different direction and then she would wind it back without even knowing that she was doing this so it was a really it came to her naturally and i always found her fascinating because she could do that tell such stories
0: and you had a lot of books around you as a kid
1: yes we had books we didn't have uh, and I had a piano but we didn't have TV or anything
0: yeah you, it's I, I read that you when you got to college you had only seen two movies 101 yeah. Dalmatians and the miracle worker yeah how do you how do you think of that now did it I mean I guess it formed you had formed you as a writer or helped
1: me as a writer but i was very very glad to bring up my daughter in new york city (laughs) let me just say that right you know to be a member of the world it was just who my parents were in their in their the whole heritage of that puritan culture that you know had come from scotland and england so many years ago it was just part of that that was continuing on and um i think i've said that they were skeptical of pleasure
0: and it's interesting to be an outlier in your family. I've kind yeah. of I've kind of felt a little bit of this in my own family because I'm the writer, and there's really not another writer, and I just feel a little bit like the oddball. Yeah. And y- y- you wonder why, you know, is it how if you came from all this deeply rooted New England puritanical, uh, like this gene pool, like uh, you're the you're the outlier.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> how did I, it happen? I know, and I used to think even when I was younger, I used to think. I, there was some strange mutation of genes that took place to produce me because I just never felt like I was from here, although I obviously am. And I felt like I wasn't in the family I was supposed to be in, you know, but I was. And there we are.
0: That's, that's it's, not,
1: it's,
0: it's not the first time I've heard that. No. And another thing is that like, I've, I've talked to a lot of writers who like from a very young age were just like, I need to be somewhere else. I need to be in New York is a lot of times what people say to me.
1: I just couldn't wait to get out I just couldn't wait
0: was there anything like aside from maybe like uh, you know a cork in your genetic makeup or something was there anything that you could point to as a child that you either read or were exposed to or heard about or was there a person in your life who might have opened things up a little bit for you that gave you a wider sense of perspective and possibility
1: I think the books I read gave me that because I read, you know, I read grown up books. We didn't really have children's books and my mother wasn't interested in children or children's books, but she did have, you know, adult books. And and so I read from a very young age and, and that, was, that was my opening to the world, these books. And I would read, you know, like I read, uh, my grandfather had bought Hemingway's complete works from a, what they used to call a Fuller Brushman. Fuller sales, whatever a door salesman, he'd come, and so they were just sitting there on the shelves, and I went straight through all of those. Wow, and I,
0: I'm glad just, to hear that. I'm glad to hear that because I could detect, yeah, some of Hemingway's music in your in your prose.
1: Yeah, and what was so great about it, I think, is that I did all of that before any of it was brought to me in school. So I had my own private relationship with these writers, and there's something there was something furtive and wonderful about it for me. You see what I mean? Sure, yeah. And then when teachers began to say, well, blah, 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 it didn't matter to me because I already had my relationship with those writers. So it was really books that opened the world to me.
0: And did you know that you wanted to be a writer from a young age?
1: Yes, I thought, I thought of myself as a writer from my earliest
0: memory. And, you know, you talked earlier about your apprenticeship years, you know, before you broke out uh, in your 40s. And you said that you were trying to write like a writer.
1: I think I was. Yeah. Which,
0: which writer or which writers? Do you did you have people that that you were imitating?
1: Well, you know, whoever was in the New Yorker that week, I was probably trying to write like that person. And it was. It took me years to realize that that was what I was trying to do because I didn't wasn't conscious. I wasn't fully aware of it at the time. But then later, I thought, no, no, I was trying to be the writer of the week in the New Yorker, whoever it was. You know and and then just realized no no no
0: yeah i found that like in past years like working on a project of my own and then reading something that's very different you know in its voice and then suddenly i return to my own work and i'm doing this mimicry thing where i'm you know i'm i'm puppeting the writer that i just read in my own work and it just takes a while to get out of that habit
1: yeah yeah exactly but You know, it's not a bad thing to do as you're training yourself, but then you have to jump off and do your own thing.
0: So Olive Kittredge was your third book? Yeah. And it won the Pulitzer. Right. And there's a great thing your mother, uh, Beverly, said that I want to read because it charmed me, I got (laughs) to say. Somebody asked her about you winning the Pulitzer. I don't know how old she was when this was she in her 80s or 90s? She was up in age. And she said, I thought, quote, I thought that was fine. At the university, I think she's referring to the university where she worked, there was a professor who won a prize. It wasn't a Pulitzer. And the truth was he won the prize because he had friends on the committee. And I don't think that was fair. I knew it wasn't true of Elizabeth. So I was very proud of her not for not cheating. <laughs>
1: Exactly. There
0: you go. So there we have, we have it on the record. Elizabeth Strout did not know anybody on the Pilitzer committee.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And I didn't, she's absolutely right. I did not cheat to get the prize. And I can,
0: you know, there's something, there's something very, I don't know, there's something very New England, I guess that would be the way to put it. But I, you can really detect, uh, I could detect some like echoes of characters like Olive or even Lucy, but especially Olive that I hear in your mother's voice and tone.
1: Yeah, she, I mean, that that quote is precisely my mother. I couldn't have written it. (laughs) It's to her. (laughs) Uh,
0: And there's a character, uh, or there's a part of Lucy Barton's character in um, Lucy by the Sea that I loved where, you know, she has a complicated relationship with her mother. She grew up in Illinois in pretty extreme poverty. And one question I had was why Illinois? Like, how did you land on Illinois as a place? Yeah,
1: exactly. Because when, when Lucy and her little voice appeared to me, I realized that I saw sky. I just saw tons of sky with this little house in the middle of Illinois. Mm. And, uh, and my husband and I went out there, you know, three probably three times to make sure each season you know, I had it right, like I had the soybeans right at the certain time. And we went, we had a, a Thanksgiving meal at a church, just like Lucy would have done. We we, we drove it and we found everything. And, but, but exactly, and it was because of Sky. And I think there was something very freeing for me to think of that Sky and to think, okay, let's just get out of New England and New York and, and go, to the Midwest. And my very first reader, Kathy Chamberlain, who I met in New York the second week I was in New York, Kathy came from Illinois many years earlier. And so when we went out there, we went to see her hometown. I mean she's not at all like Lucy Barton. Her father was a lawyer, nothing like that at all. But but I think that I'd heard enough stories from her about small towns in Illinois that it might have triggered off like why to get out of Maine. And then I also understood that you know, as Lucy Barton's mother tells her, and my name is Lucy Barton, she said, you know, I realized, oh, wait a minute, these are still the people that I come from. Because her mother said, don't forget, you know, we were the first settlers here. You know, your your family came to Provincetown, and those that were really brave moved westward. So I thought, okay, I'm still with these people. I got their cultural thing going on there. So the brave ones went west.
0: Well, it spoke to me. I spent part of my childhood. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, but spent part of my childhood in Indiana. So I know that sky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Especially the winter when it's gray and just sort of sits there for six, you know, five months or whatever it is.
1: That in Maine as well.
0: But Lucy, you know, she has a, she had a very difficult youth. She's not particularly close with her siblings, has a complicated relationship with her mother. And a a charming aspect of her character is the fact that she has made up a kind of uh, mother (laughs) 2.0, like a a kind... (laughs) understanding, like empathetic mother to whom she turns in her mind, you know, to ask questions or to receive encouragement or whatever. And I don't know that I find it kind of like, it's like a little bit funny, a little bit touching. And I'm just wondering how you landed on that.
1: You know, I think I'm not sure how I landed on that. But here's my theory looking back, because I don't really know when I'm doing something how I'm getting how I got there. But I think because in olive again isabel goodrow from amy and isabel shows up at, at olive's retirement home and they become friends because they were both married to pharmacists anyway isabel goodrow at some point when isabel overhears isabel speaking to her mother in an entirely different way but and it really freaks all out, you know when she has to go home and think about that but But then Isabel said, I think about my mother and sometimes I talk to her and it's an entirely different relationship than Lucy has with her made up mother. But I think that probably triggered off like, oh, okay, let's let's try this. And because Lucy had such a terrible mother, I mean, a difficult mother and she's imaginative, I thought, "Okay, let's see if we can go with that.
0: It's fun to hear you talk about these characters because you really are talking about them like you know them. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I know. Yeah, I know.
0: Well, I want to ask you about going from obscurity, which most writers live in, to the opposite of obscurity as far as literary fiction uh, goes and writers of literary fiction go. The difference between writing your first novel with this sense of abandon, like ah, nobody's going to read it anyway, versus putting a novel out nowadays when you have a Pulitzer Prize, people know your name. There's an expectation that uh, a good many people are going to read it. It's going to get reviewed. I'm wondering how this has changed, if at all, your relationship to the writing process and to the entire project. Like what's the what's the difference and how do you relate to it?
1: You know, after I won the Pulitzer Prize, I, I, I was frightened because I thought now people will look at what I'm going to write. Uh, but then, very shortly, I realized, you no, know, I've always held myself to the highest standard. You know that reader presence that I have in front of me. I've always held myself to the highest standard that I can. I'm, I'm, a, I'm just as much of a perfectionist as I can be to try and get it right. And so that won't change, whether it's one reader or a hundred readers. I understood because I was older too. You know, I wasn't, you know thrown by it i think in the way that i might have been if i was younger but i still have a sense of you know it's like when i i just when i work i just concentrate so hard on the work on the characters on every word on every sentence making sure the sentence falls on the ear correctly all that stuff i'm just thinking 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 and then when i lift my head up you know i get worried but then i think uh oh well
0: Okay. So you've mentioned concentration a lot and yeah. I'm glad that you did because this work to do it well requires that. And I think we live in a culture that increasingly seems to be yeah. at odds with deep concentration. So I'm wondering like what your relationship is to technology, if you have to impose certain rules on yourself when you're deep into a book, or if you're maybe, maybe your upbringing has helped you in this regard and it has helped you kind of streamline things and keep yourself in like a mental space where that kind of concentration is possible.
1: I honestly think that my, my very young childhood was probably very helpful with that because I did spend so much time alone, you know, in the woods or anywhere. I mean, at that at that time you just let your kid out of the house if they didn't show up for dinner you might you might be worried or not, you know, but you there was a lot of freedom, I'm saying, and so I was able to just roam around as a little kid in the woods alone a lot. And I think that sense of being able to have been in my own head at such a young age for such long periods of time has probably been very helpful to me as a writer because I there wasn't television, there wasn't anything distracting me. And so I never I never really learned in a way how to watch TV.
0: Did you watch the adaptation of Olive Kittredge? I did. Okay. So like, what's your relationship to TV nowadays? And are you binging because you didn't have it as a kid?
1: (laughs) No, I'm not. It's funny. I mean, during the pandemic, there were certain things that I sort of got interested in, but I was never, you know, everybody was always talking about what they were watching, you know, on Netflix or, or whatever the things were, HBO and stuff. And I've just, I, I just can't seem to do it that much. I like film, but I don't have I don't have a relationship with it.
0: What about you know? your What about your reading habits? Obviously, you read a lot. Any writer who produces books has to right. be reading a lot. But what does it look like? Like, do you, I mean, is it something that just comes so easily to you because you grew up sort of a you know inhaling books, or is it something you have to like actively carve out time for as like part of your job?
1: No, I I just pick up a book when I'm not writing. You know, I I'm I'm always reading if I'm not writing, or, you know, like, I'm a terrible housekeeper, I don't cook, you know, so.
0: (laughs) You read and you write.
1: I mean, I write, basically. And, you know, I walk and I see my friends and stuff like that. But I I just, I'm always amazed at how organized people can be in their lives. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: To do it. Well, I feel like there's only so much time, you know, you you have to pick your you have to pick your priorities.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I just feel like, you know, as long as there's a book that I'm working on that's drawing me to it, that's that's where I want to be. Even if I'm not actually working on it, I'm thinking about it. You know, I'm thinking, okay, let's... Like, like I can almost visualize it. i thinking, okay, let's get those two sentences out and let's put this one in, even if I'm not, you know, in front of the manuscript.
0: Okay, because, yeah, I was going to ask you, you said you had these periods of intense concentration when you're in your studio or in your yeah. apartment working. And I was wondering, like, once you... Finish a day's work. Do you leave the work behind? It doesn't sound like it. You carry no, it with you
1: I don't I don't I kind of wish I could but I'm so used to not that it just becomes a part of my life So no, it, it, it stays with me. It does. Yeah, it does like I'm always Well, not always but you know frequently Thinking about it concentrating thinking wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a soggy patch Okay tomorrow. I'm gonna get rid of that soggy patch and then what do you mean? I'll-
0: what do you mean soggy patch?
1: Like maybe a paragraph or two that after after I've spent the day writing it, <laughs> like I realize, oh, that's just not, that's it's soggy. It's not good. It's not sharp. It's not fresh, clean. So I'll, I remember that I have to go get rid of that, which I would have done anyway, but, you know, that kind of thing.
0: And when you think of your, when you kind of assess your own style, I mentioned earlier that I could sense Hemingway music in your prose because there is like a real... There's a crystalline, I I was uh, writing an email with your publicist and I was like, it's so vivid. There's a vividness to your writing that I was just so impressed by. And I feel like it's the same with with Hemingway. Uh, Clarity, vividness, immediacy, um, a great efficiency in the prose. There's a lot packed into each line.
1: Right, Uh, get rid of anything that you don't need, yeah.
0: Is there, are there other writers that you kind of look to in like a constellation of influences who helped you form your own style?
1: Yes. I mean, Alex Monroe was very, very important to me. She has tremendous authority on the page, you know, for one thing. and, and And I recognize that. Without even fully understanding what that was, but it was like whatever she wrote, I would go there with her, and she would go in different places. She would do things within her longer, short stories that were amazing to me, and I I would really study them and look at them. And she wrote about ordinary people. She you know she just wasn't trying for anything bigger than that, but she was doing that brilliantly. And then William Trevor, I've always loved him, and I I think I think of them as sort of bookends to my career because. I was always reaching for one or the other of them, and and studying what they had done. Because William Trevor is very gentle, but he's he can be dark, but he's very gentle in his darkness. And Alice Monroe, she's not so gentle. She didn't feel like it, you know. So, it was you know those two, especially I think. And then and the Russians, you know, I've just always loved the Russians because they're so out there over there emotions, but, but Alice Monroe and William Trevor, I think were very deeply, um, helpful to me. Yeah. It's funny. There's writers
0: that you, you latch onto like that. And I find any way that I can pick up a book that I really love or any book by a writer that I really love. And it just has like this, um, it's like it unlocks you. Uh, yeah. You know, if I feel like I'm kind of like the well is run dry, I read somebody, yeah. even if it's something I've read a million times and it can, yeah, uh, it I, can well, bring it back.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: I have read that you have conceived of your writing as a way of trying to help people like not to sound precious about it but you know you think of like your ambitions as a writer and what you hope to achieve with your books and what you hope unfolds for your reader at the other end of the line and I don't know if that fully defines it or if you disagree with yourself I know you said this at one point but is that how you think of it are you trying to I
1: think I think what I'm trying to do, there's a couple of things. I would love it if somebody just read a book and thought, oh, I'm not as alone as I thought I was. You know, that would be fabulous. Or if somebody read my book and it was almost like the ceiling of the house just got raised a little bit. You know, there was just a little more air around them, like a moment of transcendence, even if it was just for a few moments, just a sense of, oh, okay, this is only life. I'm not the only person who's had these thoughts and that would be part of what I'm hoping for. And also I'm hoping that they can read about people who aren't like them and become interested in somebody who's not like them and realize, wow, I never thought of that. I never thought of that section of society that way or something like that. So those are different things. But I I remember when I was writing Amy and Isabel, every day you know, I'd walk my daughter to school and Every day as I came back, I would be thinking about the book and I thought, I just hope one person, if only one person can read that, this is fine. And I pictured that person, oddly enough, to be like a young woman in Illinois. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. And I thought, yeah, and I thought, just somebody who feels sort of lonely and she's wandering through the library and if she could pull this book off the shelf and feel better. That's all I want.
0: You know, you talked. I think earlier uh, in your life, you had thought of winning a Pulitzer Prize. I guess maybe a lot of writers think about that. But I'm just what it's making me think about is that there's a kind of magical quality or magical aspect to Lucy, and we talked about her having these visions. And I think there's some truth to this stuff in human experience for certain people who might have. Like I call it like a bigger antenna or something yeah. you know they're they're more receptive to these signals or they can see things that other people can't right. see yeah. is the, Is there any of that for you? Do you, as a person, find yourself like like visualizing things and then manifesting them maybe to a degree that exceeds the norm or seeing things ahead of time or anything like that, or being able to see into people in ways that are uncanny
1: i feel I do feel that I can see into people in ways that feel. I don't have particular visions the way, you know, Lucy does. But I do feel and, and my friends sort of jokingly say, well, you know, Liz has got her finger on the pulse of something else, you know, like, so they seem, I think they're recognizing that I do have like what you call an extra antenna or something, you know, but when I say that I feel that I can see into the lives of other people in an uncanny way, I don't, I don't know that I can because I'm only myself. So there's no way to test how truthful, you know, my, my imagining is.
0: Now I'm terrified of what you must be thinking about with me right now. Are you, are you just seeing right into me right now? (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) No. So I know that you don't like to talk about future work as many writers do not. You're not somebody who likes to preview what they're working on in public before it's ready. And I will respect that. But a question that I have, you know, I asked you earlier about whether or not this was preconceived, you know, this sort of um, constellation of novels and this universe that you've created for your characters to inhabit. And it was not. It's sort of been a surprise as you go. But I'm wondering that as the novels have piled up and as the universe has kind of fleshed itself out, yeah. if you have developed a se- like a grand sense of the larger project, do you have like four books in your mind that you still need to write that are gonna round it out and finish it. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you have a, a total I sense exactly
1: of it? I know exactly what you're saying and the answer is yes.
0: Okay, any <laughs> hint, any hints as to how many books you feel like you have left or?
1: Oh, um, I, I only can think about one book ahead at a time. But what's always been interesting for me is that every single time I get close to finishing a book, it will arrive on the horizon, my next book. And I find that to be interesting.
0: How does it arrive, as a character?
1: Yeah, like I will all of a sudden see, oh, okay, I'll get to you in a minute. Hold on, I gotta finish this one up.
0: So just to drill down into this a little bit more, because I know listeners who write are probably leaning in. You'll be working on a book, it'll be towards the end of it, and then suddenly Lucy will show up and start talking yeah. to you.
1: Right.
0: It's a voice. It's a scene. Is it visual? Like, what are you experiencing? With Lucy,
1: it's always, Lucy, it's always her voice. I mean, not, not her actual voice, but, um, you know, I don't hear her voice. I can just sort of see it and then try and hang on to it. And otherwise, it's a character. It's a character who just presents himself or herself or itself in some manner to me. That will you, I
0: realize. Will you write it down or will you just hold it in your head?
1: I'll write it down. I'll start writing it down.
0: Okay. And I will end uh, in a, perhaps a slightly strange way because you are uh, in the world of literary fiction a writer who has sort of lived the dream. I think that most writers of literary fiction would imagine for themselves. Publishing a lot of great books, critically well-received, award-winning, you sort of have You've gone on that ride, you know, that I think all of us in some manner dream of. And so you've had great success. And what I'm wondering about is failures because we all have those two. And I think people in earlier stages of their career can get frustrated by it and might not have a fully developed kind of relationship with failure that you might, that you might need to have to persist yeah. and, to, and to get to yeah. where you are. So... I'm just wondering about failures that you've experienced, how you related to them maybe back in the day versus how you relate to them now and what you might have learned.
1: Well, you know, there's nothing romantic about failures or rejections. It's it's just they're awful, you know, because but but I think it's obviously necessary. It was very necessary for me. I mean, to just be rejected and rejected and rejected for so, so, so many years But for me, I do remember understanding that each story I wrote was a little better than the one I had written before. And that's that kept me going because I just kept thinking, well, just keep doing it because you will get better. And and that's what happened. So I did. And failures. You know, it's funny, like I don't read I don't really read reviews of my my work. And I think it's because I just, you know, I just, I'm, I'm too easily excitable, <laughs> you know? So I just, I put the book out there and I hope, and then I turn away and, and get go back. back
0: to, get back to work. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. funny. I, I read a line, I believe it was your husband who said like, I work hard. Liz works much harder. Like you're a really, you have a really strong work ethic as I think anybody who publishes a lot of books must. Like what does a work day look like for you?
1: You know, I don't have a long term stamina that I used to. Like, I used to work right after breakfast and stretch it all the way until, you know, maybe one or two o'clock until I had to eat something because lunch broke the, it would somehow break it up. Yep. And then that, so that, that would be my stretch of work. And now <clears throat> I find that I, um, well, I probably could work that hard. I mean, but but still, there's there's many different things in between that you know I do. But I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I work in a more fragmented way now. Like I think, okay, like I I walk around. And I think, okay, let's let's go back and get those paragraphs out, and and then I do. And it's almost like it feels almost like embroidery <laughs> at this point. You know, it's like I'm not, I I don't have the um, the long haul hours that I. Used to be able to do. And so now I just sort of think, okay, well, let's get these sentences. Let's pick this out. Let's pick this out. Let's do it just, you know, a sentence at a time. Let's figure this out. So it kind of goes on all day, is my point now. Doesn't really matter when I have lunch anymore, is my point.
0: But in shorter because, bursts.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, it's you know, funny. I've tried to convince people over the years who are not writers that writing, despite the fact that you're kind of inert, just sitting there staring at your screen or your piece of paper is physically exhausting in ways that would surprise people.
1: <laughs> it is so exhausting. Thank you for saying that because I mean, you know, it is absolutely exhausting. It's it's like it's like your your viscera is becoming, you know, inside out.
0: Well, I have so enjoyed talking with you. I'm grateful for the time and I love the book. Thank you. Yeah, I tore through it and uh, I have more to read. You know, I, I haven't read them all. So I'm excited to go back and like complete the cycle. It's just a wonderful like set of characters in a world that you've created and a body of work that you've created. And it's an honor to get to speak with you. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. It was really very, very wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for everything.
0: All right, folks, there we have it. That was my conversation with Elizabeth Strout, author of the new novel Lucy by the Sea, available now from Random House. You can find Elizabeth on the Internet. Her website is elizabethstrout.com. She's got a Facebook page. You can track her down on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Liz Strout. One more time, the novel is called Lucy by the Sea, available from Random House. Go get it read it it is absolutely delightful the other people podcast is offered freely it's a listener supported show so if you listen to this program regularly if you like it if you get something from it I hope you will consider supporting it you can do that for as little as one dollar per month over at patreon.com slash other pod that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash other ppl pod you can support the show for one dollar a month three dollars five dollars ten twenty whatever you can swing and as you move up the scale you can get stuff there's merch t-shirt and other people tote bag sticker coffee mug book club subscription i will send you a postcard i will wish you a happy birthday and so on and so forth over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod don't forget to rate and review this podcast over at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you listen. It takes two minutes and it really does help. Please rate and review the show. Let people know what you think. It helps the podcast find new listeners algorithmically. If you have something to say to me, if you want to offer some feedback, the email address is letters at other Letters at other send word let me know what you think don't forget to sign up for the newsletter that comes out once a week that's it just once a week sign up for the newsletter it's free you can do that at otherppl.com or at bradlisty.com it's the same newsletter uh, whether you know wherever you subscribe whether you go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com don't forget about my novel be brief and tell them everything it is out there waiting for you if you would like to read it you can do so in trade paperback ebook or an audiobook edition narrated by yours truly again it's called be brief and tell them everything the other people podcast has its own official app did you know that it's free it's a good app it's a great way to listen go get the other people app search for it by name other ppl with Brad Listy wherever you get your apps and youtube I forgot to mention, this podcast has its own YouTube channel. So if you're a YouTube person and you want to listen to this show on YouTube, the entire archive is there. Go search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy," and hit the subscribe button when you get there. It's free. Subscribe on YouTube. Next week on the program, my guest is Chelsea Martin, author of a terrific new novel called Tell Me I'm an Artist. Happy to be welcoming Chelsea Martin back onto this program she's an old pal and her new book is epic so stay tuned i'll talk to you soon all right i hope you're well out there hang in there